We're going to be looking this afternoon at Titus 1, verses 1 to 4. So let's read those verses together first. Titus 1, verses 1 to 4. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. To Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. There are a couple of things that we want to talk about um, by way of beginning our study of these verses. First of all, the whole concept of the salutation with which uh, Paul begins all of his letters, at least all the letters that we know are his. Um, We find, uh, of course, in all of them this reference to himself, and then a reference also to those to whom he is writing. And the obvious purpose is to uh, make clear who is the author and who are the recipients of the letter that Paul is writing. But uh, all of them also, I think all of them anyway, uh, make reference to Paul as an apostle, of Jesus Christ, or something along those lines. And there is, I think, the additional purpose connected with these greetings that Paul seeks to establish his authority as an apostle, his uh, right to speak to the churches and to speak authoritatively to the churches and to speak to them with the expectation that they will obey the word which he speaks. So he establishes his authority then by referring to his apostleship. And uh, in this particular case, we have something somewhat unusual. We talked a little bit about that last week. Only uh, Romans and Galatians have... Uh, longer greetings than Titus does. What Paul does here in this greeting is include a whole series of major concepts, uh, major uh, references to major doctrines of the faith. And you can go through the, the four verses and notice how many there are actually here. You have this idea of bondservant, the idea of apostle, the idea of faith, the idea of election, acknowledging of the truth, godliness, hope, eternal life, God who cannot lie, the truthfulness of God, the promise of God, the manifestation of his word through preaching, and uh, the committing of that to the apostle according to 
the commandment of God our Savior. And then in addition to that, in verse 4, the big terms, grace, mercy, and peace. If we took the time to talk about each of those concepts in detail, we would spend weeks on this passage. So what I'm going to do is just briefly describe each of those concepts as we're working our way through. So we're going to look at this under the theme salutation to Titus, and we're going to look first at that concept of Paul as a servant and an apostle, and then at what he tells us is the content of his preaching. He refers to the preaching here. And then finally, at the aim of his preaching. So, first of all, then, let's look at those two terms that we find in verse 1. Paul is a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. When he calls himself a bondservant, we could as easily, I think, translate slave. The word doesn't always mean slave. Sometimes it means a hired servant. But I think in this context, when Paul talks about himself in relation to the Lord Jesus Christ, he's thinking of himself as a slave. He is a slave of Christ. And as a slave of Christ, he's not free, of course, to do what he pleases. He's bound to do his master's will. He has to teach what his master tells him to teach. And he has to do what his master tells him to do. And he has to go where his master tells him to go. He doesn't have freedom to introduce his own ideas, to go to the places he wants to go to, uh, to do the things he wants to do. His whole life and his whole, uh, even his speech, is subject to the will of his master. He is a slave of Jesus Christ. And that's a position of great humility, of course, in the first place. We all are slaves of Jesus Christ. And it's a position of great humility, but it's also, ultimately for us, a position of great honor. And we might even say a position of great freedom because it's only as slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ that we know the freedom that he himself has given to us. So he's a slave. He's a slave in the very special sense that Christ has called him to a special work, the work of the apostle. And that's the second term then that we want to talk about, this concept of the apostle. And there's quite a bit contained in that uh, term apostle, but it's kind of in a sense also the opposite of the term slave. If, if the term slave means he's in a very uh, humble position, the term apostle means he's in a very exalted position under the Lord Jesus Christ. And we can, we'll see that as we look at what that term conveys. In the first place, of course, the apostles were the twelve uh, the original 12 included Judas. Judas uh, betrayed the Lord Jesus and uh, killed himself, and the apostles appointed Matthias in his place, and then God later added the apostle Paul to the number as well, so that there were really 13 apostles. 
at the time of the Apostle Paul, anyway. And these apostles were called directly by Jesus Christ himself. You remember how in the Gospels it's recorded for us that as Jesus was going around uh, preaching and teaching and doing miracles and so on, that he would single out certain men and he would say to them, come, follow me. And even to some of them he said, uh, I will make you fishers of men. He was summoning them, calling them to this work of apostle. And the Apostle Paul also received his call directly from the Lord Jesus Christ, not in the same way that the others had during Christ's earthly ministry, but while he was on the road to Damascus, and Christ appeared to him and called him to this work. So that one of the characteristics of the office is that the apostles received their calling directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. Many officers in the church of both Old and New Testament received their calling through others. But the apostles received it directly from Christ himself. The second thing about these apostles is that they were taught and trained for their work by the Lord Jesus himself. The eleven by the years that they, during the years that they spent with Lord Jesus Christ, were being taught and trained by him in the work which he was uh, giving them to do. And the Apostle Paul makes quite a point of this in Galatians chapters 1 and 2 when he says, I did not receive my teaching from men. I received it from Christ himself. He even says he didn't receive it from the other apostles. He received it from Christ directly. So the apostles were taught directly by the Lord Jesus Christ. And the third thing that characterized them was that every one of them had seen with his own eyes the risen Christ. They were all eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ. The eleven, of course, had seen him shortly after he rose from the dead. John chapters 20 and 21 record that for us. And Paul had seen him again on the road to Damascus. They could say to people then, to all those to whom they preached the gospel, I can tell you that Christ has risen from the dead because I saw him with my own eyes. There was eyewitness testimony to this key doctrine of the Christian faith that of that doctrine, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is not raised, your faith is vain. And the opposite is also true. If Christ is raised from the dead, then our faith is true. All that we believe concerning him and concerning the scriptures is true. So they were able to bear testimony to that founding, that fundamental doctrine of the Christian faith, eyewitness testimony to that doctrine. It's very clear then from those uh, characteristics of the office of apostle that that office can't exist anymore. There are no people who have those kinds of experiences or those kinds of qualifications. The office ceased after these 12 uh, were dead. Never again has there been an apostle in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are some other things about that office 
that we should notice too. In, in the first place, these apostles uh, were given authority over the whole church. The authority of elders, for example, was limited to their local congregations. And uh, the authority of deacons was limited to their local congregations. But the apostles had authority over all the churches. And so when Paul writes his letters to the churches he founded, but also to churches that he didn't found, like the church in Rome, he speaks with the same authority, with the authority of an apostle. He speaks on behalf of Christ to these churches. Another thing about this office is that it really embraced all of the offices of the church. So in the early church, you had the office of prophet. The apostles were clearly prophets. Their inspired writings bear witness to that. The uh, church had elders. Peter speaks of himself as an elder in 1 Peter chapter 5. The apostles were deacons in caring for the poor. In Acts chapter 6, in fact, we find out that they were the only ones caring for the poor in the church in Jerusalem until the work became too much for them and they appointed deacons to take over that work from them. So the apostles embraced in their uh, scope of authority all the different functions that belonged to, belong now to separate offices in the church. And the Lord made it this way so that these apostles could speak on his behalf, authoritatively on his behalf, to the churches. Could speak, in fact, by inspiration, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to the churches. And could communicate to the churches, then, the whole of his truth. That was their job. They, they built the foundation on which the church is laid. They are, as Paul says in Ephesians 2, the foundation. He speaks of the foundation of the apostles and prophets and of Jesus Christ as the chief cornerstone. He and the eleven were this foundation of the apostles and prophets. And it's to this, then, that Paul is, is referring when he calls himself an apostle. He's saying, I have the same kind of authority, the same kind of commission, the same kind of functions as all the other 11. And partly the reason for this was that it was challenged by uh, some in the early days of the church. They uh, saw that Paul was somewhat vulnerable in their view on this point because he hadn't been called and commissioned in the same way that the other apostles had been called. And they began to deny his apostleship and to say, that there was no need for the church to accept his teaching because he was not a legitimate apostle. And Paul's point then in, in defending his apostleship and in referring to his apostleship in all these letters is to remind the churches that he speaks with the authority of Christ himself. That it is really Christ who speaks through him. That he brings to them the very word of God. And that therefore they are bound to believe and obey that word. That's the kind of authority he has. It's for that reason then 
that he says in verse 4, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. He's not speaking on his own behalf. He's not saying, I wish grace, mercy, and peace upon you. He's saying, I proclaim, I pronounce grace, mercy, and peace upon you in the name of God the Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. I bring you grace, mercy, and peace. I bring you this greeting from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. He's speaking for Christ. He's pronouncing this benediction, this blessing upon Titus in the name of Christ and for Christ. And Titus should receive it then as from Christ. Grace, mercy, and peace are being pronounced from Christ. And he should receive it as from Christ. And as he receives it, receive the very things that are pronounced, that grace, mercy, and peace, which the apostle commands here. So that's, that's the words, the slave and apostle. But we need also to go down to verse 3, where Paul talks about himself again, and he says, the preaching which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. So he's, he's talking about the preaching, and he says, here's my function as an apostle my primary function, to preach. That is to play the part of a herald for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where that word comes from in the Greek, the idea of being a herald. And of course, the idea of the herald was that he was given a message by the king, and then he had to go to the people whom the king wanted to hear that message, and he had to proclaim that message. And it was his business to repeat that message which the king had given him to speak. It was not to say, well, I think that the king means this, or I think that the king means that. Or He was simply to say, the king has said, and this is the nature of the preaching of the gospel, that those who preach the gospel, those who are called by Christ to preach the gospel, come to men saying, the king has said. The king has declared, this is the word of the king. That's why it's so important for preachers of the gospel to stick to the word, not to speculate, not to introduce their own opinions, but to stick to what the word says. So the preaching was committed to the Apostle Paul by the commandment of God our Savior. So what we see here is God, our Savior, and the Lord Jesus Christ standing behind the Apostle Paul, commissioning him to be an apostle, calling him and sending him to preach the gospel and giving to him the words that he was to say. And these words come from God, who is our Savior. They are God through the preaching of the Apostle Paul, declaring that salvation which God has worked for us in Jesus Christ. He has, that's his commandment. 
Go and preach this gospel, the gospel of God our Savior and of the Lord Jesus Christ our Savior. Now if you look at the text closely for a minute, you can see that when Paul begins to talk about the content of this preaching, he focuses especially on one thing. He says in verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me. So what he's saying there is that the content of my preaching is especially eternal life. He proclaims eternal life. And he says, I think we may say, three things about that eternal life. He says, in the first place, that it was promised before time began. So this is eternal life which God has promised first. And Paul is taking us back to Old Testament times and to all those promises those covenants that God had made with his people in Old Testament times. The promise he made to Adam, the promise to Noah, the promise to Abraham, the promises to Israel at Mount Sinai, the promise to David, and all the other promises proclaimed by the prophets of the Old Testament. He's taking us back to that, and he's referring us to the promises of God. And he says, this is the promise that I'm talking about. This is the promise that I'm preaching that promise which God declared in Old Testament times. But he says of that promise then, that it's before time began. The promise before time began. And there's a question about the meaning of that phrase. If you look at the New American Standard version of the Bible, for example, you will see that the New American Standard Bible says they are promised long ages ago. Promised long ages ago. And what the New American Standard Bible is doing there, and what John Calvin does in his commentary on this passage too, is make that phrase refer to the Old Testament period. Now it's very clear that our translation doesn't accept that interpretation of the phrase. It's probably a possible interpretation of the phrase, but our translation refers this to eternity, before time began. Literally, in the Greek, before times of ages or before everlasting times. Something of that sort. Young's literal translation, I think, has before times of ages. So the question is, what does that phrase refer to? Does it refer to the Old Testament, or does it refer to eternity? If you go to 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, you find this very same phrase. 2 Timothy 1, verse 9 where Paul says, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. 
the grace given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. Now I think that's pretty clearly not a reference to the Old Testament, but to eternity. And I think that in light of that, I much prefer to take this here in Titus also as referring to eternity. So what Paul is doing here is he's taking that word promise and he's pushing it all the way back to eternity. Yes, it was spoken in the Old Testament, but it has its roots in the eternal counsel of God. It was in the eternal counsel of God before time began that God determined to speak that promise, to make that promise known. And when we look at it that way, then we see that this promise has a very strong certainty to it. That what Paul is doing here is he's establishing the fact that that promise of God is believable. That it's a promise that God will surely keep. Because it's a promise that he made, that he determined in his eternal and unchangeable counsel from before the worlds began. And it is, at the same time, a promise spoken by God who cannot lie. So you have two things that Paul uses here to establish the certainty of the promise of God. It's a reliable promise. It's a promise we can put our trust in. The promise of eternal life for all those who belong to God. It's a promise that he determined from the foundations of the world in his eternal and unchangeable counsel. And it's a promise made to us by the God who cannot lie. The unlying God, if you want to use a more literal translation of the Hebrew. The God who speaks no lie, who is altogether a speaker of truth. That's the God who speaks this promise to us through the preaching of the gospel. Paul's saying here that the preaching of this promise was what was committed to him. God has committed the preaching of this promise to me. It's the promise that we hear today, the promise of eternal life. There's no reason to doubt that promise. That all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will have eternal life. So that's one thing. The proclamation of a certain promise. A promise that cannot be doubted. But I think we can also hear, and we're talking about the content of Paul's preaching, look at that blessing that he gave to Titus, grace, mercy, and peace. He is, in a certain sense, proclaiming to Titus the gospel, isn't he? The grace, mercy, and peace of the gospel. That grace which is the favor of God towards us, wholly unmerited by us, In fact, contrary, absolutely contrary to our merits. That mercy of God which takes compassion on us in our trouble, 
in our misery and in our sin and works so lovingly and carefully for our salvation. And that peace which reconciles us to God after our rebellion against him and our uh, natural war against him ever since the fall of Adam and Eve. Those are part of the content of the gospel as well. Grace, mercy, and peace. So that's another aspect of this. Paul means to point to this content of the gospel. But we should also, I think, see here that this preaching of the Apostle Paul also talks here about the preaching, the aim of the preaching of the gospel, the purpose of the preaching of the gospel. And that brings us to that phrase, according to the faith of God's elect, in verse 1. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect. Now there's again disagreement about what this phrase means, or what really the preposition means. If you look at the commentator William Hendrickson, he says that what it really means is uh, with the uh, intention to uh, build the faith of God's elect, something of that sort, with a view to the faith of God's elect. And so Paul is an apostle preaching the gospel, and he's describing here the aim of his preaching, that it is with a view to the faith of God's elect. But it's pretty clear that our translation does not take that view of the passage. It translates the preposition here according to, and that uh, is the usual meaning, actually, of that preposition in the New Testament, and we're going to take it that way. Those are arguments to be made on both sides of the question. But then the question is, what does Paul mean when he says he's an apostle according to the faith of God's elect? An apostle according to the faith of God's elect. That's a a kind of strange expression. And I, I think that what the apostle is saying is that not only is he an apostle, objectively speaking, because Christ has commissioned him and sent him and given him the word which he is speaking. But also he's an apostle as a point of doctrine for the believers. It's according to their faith. This is a a point of their faith that they believe that that Paul is an apostle and a servant of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is doing, I think, is emphasizing this whole idea of his apostleship, that not only has he objectively been called and sent by the Lord Jesus Christ, but that the faith of God's elect includes this idea that he is indeed an apostle, that his word is to be believed and obeyed because he is an apostle. That this is part of the 
a revelation of God to us now in the scriptures, that Paul was an apostle and that his word is authoritative for the church today. It's a point of faith with us that the apostle, that Paul was indeed an apostle. But notice too then that what Paul calls this the faith of God's elect. And there he makes reference to the doctrine of election. And the doctrine of election is that doctrine which teaches us, the doctrine of the scriptures, which teaches us that God, before the foundations of the world, chose out of the fallen human race certain men, not all, to salvation and rejected the rest. And that this choosing was not based on anything in the people themselves, but was wholly according to his good pleasure. So that, Romans 9 says, he hardens whom he wills, and he shows mercy to whom he wills. He chose Jacob and rejected Esau. He loved Jacob and hated Esau. That's the doctrine of election very briefly. And Paul's referring to that, and he says, he talks about the faith, not of the believers, not of the Christians, but the faith of the elect. And what he means, I think, is that this uh, faith proceeds from election, that a fruit of their election is that they believe, that God who has chosen them from before the foundation of the world will also assure that they come to faith through the preaching of the gospel. And that, then, they will embrace that gospel, of course, as they come to that faith. And they will acknowledge the truth. According to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth. That acknowledging of the truth, again, includes Paul's apostleship, but all the other doctrines that are referred to here and all the other doctrines of the scriptures as well. So the aim of Paul's preaching here is the communication of the the doctrine, the teaching, which Christians are to believe, to receive by faith. But it's also godliness. He says, the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. Now when we hear that, I think we'd like to have it put a, put a different way. We'd like to have the godliness which accords with truth. That is, truth is the beginning, and out of uh, belief in the truth and understanding of the truth comes godliness. And actually, Paul does talk in those kinds of terms in Chapter 2, when we get to chapter 2, verses 11 and following, we'll, we'll see that. But here, he puts it the other way around. The truth, the acknowledging of the truth, which accords with godliness. And I think that which accords with godliness refers not to truth, but to acknowledging. The acknowledging of the truth, which accords with godliness. And the point is then that 
these two, godliness and the acknowledging of the truth, stand together. And there is a reciprocal relationship between them. We begin with the acknowledging of the truth, the the confession of the truth, the belief in the truth. But as we confess and believe that truth, God nourishes us to godliness, works godliness in us through the truth. And this godliness, in turn, uh, enlightens our minds more and more and brings us more and more into conformity to the truth. So that truth feeds godliness, but increases in godliness also enlighten us more and more with regard to the truth and strengthen our acknowledgement of the truth. This is an acknowledging of the truth then which accords with godliness as we are more and more godly, more and more conformed to the image of Christ, more and more reverent in our worship of God and our fear of God, more and more in obedience to his commandment, God also reveals to us more and more of his truths. So these two work together, come together in us, and nourish each other in us. And this also is part, then, of what the Apostle is preaching. He's preaching that truth which accords with godliness. And as we saw last week, he's very deeply concerned with both here in this letter, with truth and with godliness. And then there's a third thing that I think belongs to the aim of his preaching, and that is hope, which we find in verse 2. The acknowledging of the truth which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Now again, um, there's disagreement about what that prepositional phrase, in hope, modifies. Some would say that it modifies apostle. And so you have two parallel phrases. Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ according to the faith of God's elect and in hope of eternal life. Some would say that that in hope modifies the whole of verse 1. But I think that it modifies godliness. This is godliness in hope of eternal life. Or godliness upon hope of eternal life, to translate the uh, Greek more literally. Godliness upon hope of eternal life. So uh, the Apostle Paul first establishes a connection of godliness with truth, or the acknowledging of the truth, and then he establishes a connection of hope with godliness, or with of godliness with hope. He connects it to two things, one on each side of the word. It's godliness that's founded upon hope. Hope, our hope of eternal life, motivates us to live godly. That's the idea. The the hope that we have through the promise proclaimed, motivates us to live godly. And this hope is not 
a doubting kind of hope, as we might say, for example, today, I, I hope it rains. And what we mean by that is, uh, I would like to have some rain, but I, I have no certainty about it. I, d- I just don't know whether it's going to rain or not. Right? That's what we mean by hope in our ordinary speech. But that's not hope in the scriptures. Hope in the scriptures is certain. It's hope founded on the promise of God, that certain promise, that infallible promise of God, that promise which the God who cannot lie has spoken to us, that promise which has its roots in his eternal and unchangeable counsel. It's hope which is certain. And the element of hope then is not that there's doubt about the fulfillment of the promise, but the element of hope is that we long for that promise to be fulfilled in the future. So we have this then about the promise that God has uh, rooted that promise in eternity before time began. He has in due time manifested it in his word and he has declared it through the preaching of the apostles and the uh, ministers of the gospel. And this promise is the promise of eternal life. And this promise of eternal life is what we put our hope in, our certain hope. A promise which we do not doubt will be fulfilled for us, or should not doubt will be fulfilled for us. So let's just review briefly. I think what you can say here is that there are kind of two chains that the apostle traces here. One of those chains begins with the doctrine of election in eternity. That election bears the fruit of faith in God's elect. And because of that faith, God's elect acknowledge the truth. Also the truth that Paul is an apostle of Jesus Christ and therefore his word is true. They believe the word of the apostle. That's one chain that you see. The other chain that you see also begins in eternity. It's the promise from before ages, from before time began. A promise proclaimed in the Old Testament, a promise manifested in the word, and a promise preached by the Apostle Paul. You see the chain that links the preaching of the Apostle Paul to God's eternal counsel. He's proclaiming that promise which is rooted in God's eternal counsel, that infallible promise that's rooted in God's eternal counsel. God revealed it in the Old Testament. He manifested it in his word. He gave Paul and the apostles and the preachers of the gospel the responsibility of proclaiming that promise. And this proclamation of the promise, then, is the means of faith in the truth and godliness. So we have all these concepts related to our salvation in which Paul shows us the certainty of that salvation. 
a certainty which is rooted in God's election, God's promise, God's truthfulness, and God's work from the beginning of time even until now. It is the promise of eternal life and of grace, mercy, and peace in our Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. May God bless his word.